0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, President of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths' faithful volunteer and dramatist, Leslie Ford. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be starting in chapter 3. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Chuck, would you lead us, please?
1: Lord Jesus, thank you for gifting us with imagination and vision that we can communicate and that we can think and that we can act and uh, that we have that gift that you give us. And uh, Lord, uh, we pray for wisdom and guidance for each of us uh, as we try to to be your mission here on earth, to be the salt and light, to do as you commanded us to do and to occupy. And we thank you for that and we pray for your wisdom and judgment, we pray for your uh, care for Mark and his big family and uh, his time that he puts into this, and we thank you, Lord, for uh, blessing him uh, in advance, and uh, so uh, please teach us tonight, in Christ's name, amen.
0: Amen, thank you, amen. and welcome,
2: Mark. Oh, thank you. We have gotten through an introduction to Hebrews and uh, chapters 1 and 2, and... Ready to begin the third chapter here. Encourage anyone to go back and listen to the previous uh, recordings if you haven't done so because it sets the context for what we're doing here. But we basically have an individual, could even be a woman who is of Judean nationality and religion, but who has grown up abroad outside of Palestine speaking Greek. And this person is writing to similar Judeans abroad in the dispersion who use the Septuagint or the Greek Old Testament as their scriptures. We have pretty much compelling evidence that that's the case with the author and the audience, that none of these people actually were with Jesus in the flesh, Uh, touched him, uh, spoke with him in person. But these are, I guess, what you would call second-generation believers who have uh, been in contact with those who were in the presence of Christ in the flesh. And the purpose of this letter is to persuade these Judeans not to slide back from their confidence in Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah to just being good Judeans following the law of Moses, because that is a fatal, uh, fatal uh, mistake, is what we're seeing here in the text. So we can begin this evening, the
3: first six verses of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Oh, great. Thank you so much.
2: The audience is addressed as members of a holy brotherhood. So this calls or uses two terms together, holy, which referred to all of Israel, and brotherhood, which refers to something even greater, uh, to the new family of God that was created at the cross that we learned about at the end of the Gospel of John uh, some time ago when we looked at that. He told uh, Mary in the garden, I go to my father and your father. So this this new family had been created at the cross, uh, I believe personally when the blood and the water uh, flowed from his side there. And so they are Israel, but they are something more than Israel has ever been before. And the next phrase, partakers of the heavenly calling, drives this home. Heavenly, uh, well I know I grew up, thinking that it meant people with halos and harps standing on clouds uh, strumming a harp. But I believe bad imagery that has been imposed on us. Um, the word heavenly isn't talking about above the clouds or beyond the farthest galaxy, but it is referring to the spiritual realm, something beyond the physical uh, universe. And the calling is spiritual. It's not physical. It's not tangible. And uh, we'll see this theme tonight. Uh, Chapter 3 is really a little more exciting than what we've seen thus far. It's going to tie in to a lot of the concepts that we found in the book of Acts over this past year. They are Israel, but they are more than Israel. They are the family of God, and they have had a heavenly calling. I've had up on my iPad for several months a uh, website called uh, Judaism 101, and this is, uh, I can't pronounce it, Mashiach the Messiah, but this relays the rabbinic Jews' version of Messiah, what they are expecting. Here And they have a whole section on why Jesus was not the Messiah. He talks about the, the two ages that we emphasized in uh, Acts. The present age, which is the age of the law of Moses. And then Olam Haba, which is in uh, Aramaic the world to come. The, the new age of the age of Messiah. And remember, in Jewish thought, as well as in ancient Judean thought, there were only two ages. There was the age of the temple and of Moses, and there was the age to come. Now, we believe that the age to come came when Jesus came, but they don't believe that. They say that in this new age, all of the Jewish people will return from exile amongst all the nations to their home in Israel. The law of jubilee will be reinstated. So they believe in a physical regathering of physical Israel to physical Palestine. See, this is not the spiritual calling that we find here in Hebrews chapter 3. What about Jesus? Jews do not believe that Jesus was the Mashiach. Assuming he existed and assuming the Christian scriptures are accurate, both of which are debatable, he simply did not fulfill the mission of the Mashiach as it is described in the biblical passages. He did not do any of the things that the scriptures said the Messiah would do. Now this sounds eerily like our dispensational friends who claim that none of the prophecies were fulfilled by Christ or in the first century period. And then they talk about Bar Kokhba who led the rebellion about 120 AD and how he was far more of a good physical Messiah than was Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, they basically go on, I don't want to read it, but they basically go on that because Jesus of Nazareth did not fulfill these prophecies physically he could not be the Messiah. So I just wanted to point that uh, out. A
1: qu- question you. about uh, about that source, Mark. Yeah. Where does the Talmud fit into the teaching of Judaism one oh one? Do they talk about Talmudic law or do they just talk about
2: No, these are just talking about Old Testament scriptures. Now some do tie it in, you know, and they just use the Talmud as commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, but although some you can sense are a, a little bit more distorted by it, but all of the passages here are from the Old Testament. There's nothing from the Talmud on this particular website. but there's a bunch more you can do. I looked up Jewish views of the last days, and you you get scores and scores and scores of websites all of which seem to confirm the viewpoint that I developed when we looked at the book of Acts about you know physical versus spiritual, and which I think is being driven home here in Hebrews chapter 3, that uh, this is being written to a remnant of Israel who have had a spiritual calling to become the family of God.
1: Yes. Okay.
2: All right. Now, so these exalted uh, Israelites to whom this letter is addressed are asked to consider the apostle and high priest whom we confess, Jesus. And then he is uh, faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Now, we saw this in the Gospel of John, which we looked at before we looked at the book of Acts, we saw that Christ compared himself over and over to Moses. I can only speak the things that I have received from the Father. I have only done the things that Moses said I would do. He did this over and over again in the Gospel of John. And then we saw in Acts chapter 3, for instance, when Peter and John are speaking up in the temple courtyard after healing the the, uh, lame beggar, By the beautiful gate, they remind the audience, who are all Judeans, that Moses himself predicted that there would be one like him who would come and that anyone who did not listen to him would be utterly cut off from the people. And, of course, that means Israel would be utterly cut off from Israel. So this is very consistent language to compare Christ to Moses, but no, there's a very important distinction that begins here at the end of verse 2, Moses was faithful in all God's house, down in verse 5 it says Moses indeed was faithful in all God's house as a servant, and so we begin to see the contrast here, and in fact that really is the theme of this entire first paragraph. The first six verses of chapter three, that there's a contrast between Jesus and Moses. They there were a lot of similarities, but Moses was just a servant in the household of God. Jesus is not a servant in the household of God. He is the heir in the household of god and so jesus is superior to moses jesus serves as an apostle and a high priest now moses was like an apostle is simply an ambassador moses certainly was an advocate for the people to yahweh and uh, he served as the ambassador of god to Israel but he was not actually the high priest his brother Aaron was the high priest uh but Moses certainly served as an advocate but our writer just tells us Jesus in fact has been deemed worthy of greater glory than Moses inasmuch as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house every house is built by someone but the one who built all things is God and and this is a very parallel to the prologue of the Gospel of John where it says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and through the Word all things were created and this idea of Word, remember, is the Greek word logos which is the expression of something like a corporate logo is the image of that corporation. Jesus is the image of God is every part of God that could be comprehended, sensed by a human being using sight, uh, hearing, touch etc. And so he created all things and our writer here is saying the same thing that he has built the household of God and the household of God is simply Israel. It was Israel. There was a picture of it with the Garden of Eden back in the beginning of Genesis, but it really comes about through the patriarchs and through the establishment of Israel as a covenant nation with God at Mount Sinai. And that's of course the house that Moses was the servant to, was the house of of Israel established there at Sinai. Uh, and we'll have some more to say about that as we get into more detail here in chapter 3. He is faithful as a servant, testifying to the things that we're about to speak of. Now this draws to mind another comparison uh, in the Old Testament, and that of Ishmael and Isaac, two sons of, well, it's really not Ishmael and Isaac, but it's rather before Abraham had a son, His heir was his servant, Eleazar of Damascus. You see, he didn't have a a true son to be his heir, so his heir was going to be a servant. So, Isaac finally comes along and supplants, well, Ishmael, who supplanted uh, Eleazar of Damascus as the heir of the household of Abraham. And Paul uses... You know, the similar comparisons when he's talking about the son of the bondwoman Ishmael is uh, Mount Sinai and Isaac is the new covenant in Christ. So these types of comparisons using typology are are very common in all the New Testament writings. And again, we're, we're very much universally studied amongst the Protestant churches until the rise and advent of, I don't know what you'd call it, (laughs) modern liberalism that denies the inspiration of the Bible and almost at the same time fundamentalism, which we know today of as dispensational premillennialism or Christian Zionism, which totally denies the typology of the Old Testament that these people represented spiritual concepts. But our audience here understand these because they are partakers of a heavenly calling they understand the spiritual nature of God's household under Jesus Christ Christ is faithful as the son over the house and now it is we who are Christ's house and this is the theme of the entire Bible from the Garden of Eden Genesis 2 all the way to the very end of Revelation God's driving eternal purpose to create a perfect dwelling place for himself on earth. And he has done that through Christ's work, through building up of a spiritual temple. The third temple that our dispensational friends are still waiting for, or maybe banking money to help build a third physical temple, was built. Uh, The book of Acts is the dialogue of the actual building of the third temple back in the first century. And, of course, our writer speaks of it as an accomplished fact here. Now it is we who are Christ's house, those of Israel who have become part of the family of God and who are partakers of this spiritual calling a lot in here we'll we'll see some more that reinforces this here further on in the chapter. just again, by way of review, you look at the uh, Jewish websites on the last days, you look at the Old Testament, and the last days that they have in mind are the last days of physical Israel. Messiah would appear at the end of the age to usher in the new age. And uh, the, that kind of language is, is in evidence here in chapter 3 of Hebrews. All right, any thoughts or comments on this first paragraph?
1: Well, only that when you talk about Jewish beliefs today, I think it's reasonable to say that the most widespread Jewish beliefs today are atheistic and uh, the entire reformed church is as my jewish friends have told me over the years we really don't buy that afterlife stuff uh, very very you, you may have a lot of websites that uh, tell jews what they ought to believe but uh, very few modern jews seem to believe it
2: oh yeah that's irrelevant to my discussion these are strictly orthodox uh, websites who uh, that are actually commenting on what we call the Old Testament Scriptures.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yes,
2: I mean, what, what, you're, what you stated is true, but it, it has no bearing on what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that the Orthodox Jews expect a physical fulfillment of their Scriptures, and they use that as evidence that Jesus was not Messiah. Our dispensational friends expect a physical fulfillment but yet they still claim to believe that Jesus is Messiah, and they'd be offended if you claimed they didn't. But they are devoting every fiber of their being to replacing Christ's redemptive work with the old form that was intended to be done away with at the end of the age. So there's there's a lot of irony, you know, in this. But again, we see consistently that. The New Testament demands a spiritual interpretation of the Old Testament
3: prophecies. Mark, I found this very fascinating. What you just read there about the, being a third temple—I've never just like last week had some revelations of what you were saying. This is a revelation to me as well. But it says it right there. It says Christ is faithful as the servant of God and God's house, and we are His house. It's clear as day.
2: Yeah, it is. This is so much easier than the convoluted garbage of dispensationalism, pardon me for being so blunt, and the, all of the convoluted explanations that the non-dispensational churches have tried to come up with, you know, to counter it, and they failed miserably because they cannot divest themselves of hundreds and hundreds of years of human tradition. And religious tradition and religious teaching. But the obsession God has for building his house on earth is evident in every book of the Bible, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. And it's right here, but we haven't been taught it in Sunday school. We haven't heard it in sermons. We don't read it, anything about it in commentaries. And so the words, even though they're right there in black and white, have been obscured by hundreds of years of bad, bad Bible interpretation. I agree. And it's far more difficult to get rid of that bad baggage than it is to just read the simple story and see the consistency of the theme, you know, from the beginning to the end. Well, let's read the rest of the chapter here, uh, verses 7 through 19, please.
3: They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, As you did in the rebellion, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all these, those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not for those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Great, thank you so much.
2: Now, this is a quote uh, from the Psalms uh, that this begins. It's attributed to the Holy Spirit. The writer has absolutely no doubt that the Old Testament scriptures are the inspired word of God. And this passage is calling Israel to remembrance of the exodus that we find back in the book of Exodus. And specifically to the rebellion, the day of testing in the desert, where your forefathers tried me and put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now we tried to demonstrate as we went through the book of Acts that the apostles saw themselves as part of a new exodus. They saw themselves as helping to fulfill all the prophecies of Isaiah that talked about a new exodus that would occur when Messiah came. And we see this same exodus imagery appearing right here near the beginning of this letter to the Hebrews. And this is very interesting. Remember our context. This is an Israelite writing to other Israelites. Now, I've heard preachers over and over again apply this to all Christians today without any token attempt of setting a context for this passage and others like it. But this has much greater meaning to an Israelite. Uh, a physical Israelite like our audience uh, here is. The early Exodus is being called to mind and important fact in verse 9, they saw God's works for 40 years. These were mighty works of deliverance. These were miracles that Hollywood tries with special effects to duplicate. I mean, we're talking about the ocean, you know, drying up and people walking through on dry land. We're talking about all the water in Egypt turning to blood. We're talking, you know, all the plagues. We're talking about immediate mastery of nature's laws by God demonstrating His complete control over creation. And we see these similar types of works being done by Christ in the flesh and the apostles as his spiritual body all through the Gospels and the book of Acts. They are restoring people who were born without body parts. They are raising the dead. They are doing things that people are not doing uh, today. They, they were they were doing mighty works uh, and they were for deliverance because physical Israel was spiritually dead. She worshipped in the second temple, which was empty. The throne room of the second temple was always empty. God's throne was not there. God's divine presence never settled visibly on the second temple as it did on the tabernacle at Mount Sinai or as it did on Solomon's temple, the first temple, when it was dedicated. God did not manifest himself, make his presence known ever And they were still waiting for that to happen, for God's presence to return, to dwell in their midst in the second temple. These people had seen the mighty works just as that first generation of Israel after Mount Sinai saw those mighty works. And there was a period of 40 years in the wilderness. Well, there's a period of, guess what, 40 years roughly between the cross approximately 30 A.D., and the destruction of the temple and all of Israel in 70 A.D. It's another period of 40 years. And in verse 10, he's quoting that I, God, was vexed with that generation. Talk about the first exodus. But in the Greek here, it is changed to this generation. So, Our writer is identifying the presently living, at that time, generation of Israel with the generation that was alive at the time of the Exodus. That's very significant. And again, it just fits perfectly with what we saw in the book of Acts. They always go astray at heart. They have not learned my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter into my rest. This idea of rest is the idea of Shabbat or Sabbath. And if you go to Israel today and you're there on a Saturday, the uh, elevators go into automatic mode on Saturday and open at every floor going up and open at every floor going down because it is against rabbinic law to push an elevator button on the Sabbath. I I kid you not. This is the physical expectation of God's rest, the Sabbath day, when you don't do any work, that that is the ultimate fulfillment of it. But this is not the ultimate fulfillment of it. And I think we'll see uh, later on in Hebrews, we certainly can see, in some of Paul's writings that the rest that Abraham really could see way out there the rest that the Sabbath was just a shadow of was to be adopted into the household of God to become a brother to Jesus Christ this is the eternal rest that God had in mind from before the foundation of the earth and yet the generation of the Exodus would not enter into God's rest, and the generation alive at the time of this writing would not enter into God's rest. And so this is a, this is a strong admonition, the second we've seen already in this letter, that if you reject Jesus, it's more, it's more serious than if you rejected Moses. See to it, brothers, that there is not in any of you an evil heart of unbelief deserting the living God. But encourage one another day by day, so long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So again, pastors can make application of this to modern-day Christian living, but it's really resting this passage out of context. Our writer is writing to... Israelites living at the end of the old age, on the cusp of the new age. And he says, encourage one another as long as it is called today. In other words, as long as our old age endures, we've got to be encouraging each other because the vast majority of us are going to be utterly and completely destroyed. And... This goes on to just drive that home. We have become partners with Christ. I mean, that's that's a a husband and wife are partners. We are the body of Christ married to him. He doesn't use the marriage image here specifically, but partnership and marriage are closely related. If we maintain the beginning of our steadfastness firm to the end. Now, he's talking about the end of that age not just the end of each of their physical lifespans, but it was it is to the end of that age. He is quoting again here, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion, and then he, he asks the, the readers who rebelled against him. Was it the uh, Edomites, the Amalekites? No, it was Israel. It was the very people that Moses brought out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders. Those are the... Yes.
1: Mark, this is all really apparent in all of Christ's discourses to and His meetings with the Pharisees where He so clearly stated that that uh, they were the condemned race. Sons of Satan.
2: Yeah, I mean, not just because of their race because of their evil heart of unbelief, as it is stated right here in black and white. But the whole people, the whole covenant people of Israel, were cursed by the law of Moses. It was a blessing, but it was also a curse. When it was delivered, there was a blessing and there was a curse. When they entered the promised land under Joshua, they recited all of the law, and they had the blessings, and they had the curse. So it was a blessing, but it was also a great curse. And the the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests perfectly fulfilled the curse part yeah. of the law. Mm-hmm. And so just to say that a Christian who makes a mistake or has a bad week is subject to the same type of punishment as they did back then. It's not accurate. It's resting the passage completely out of context here. These people were cursed amongst all the generations of Israel. The final generation was the most cursed. And we saw that in the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, which uses a lot of this same language to express that of a certain twisted and perverse generation. And
1: what and course, about, yeah. what about the present race of Israelites who claim to be Israelites?
2: Well, uh, you know, I don't believe they are a race at all. I mean, when you go there, you can see uh, people of all different races.
1: Well, call it, uh, call it then a religion.
2: And it's not a religion either, because as you already commented, 80% of them are uh, agnostics. So it's not a religion and it's not a race. What is, you know, the modern day state of Israel? It's a nationality. They've chosen a nationality to claim identity with. Okay. It's not a genetic identity. It is not a religious identity. It is simply a national identity. And they've created a new one and they've tried to tie their new national identity back to the identity of old Israel with David and Solomon. But, of course, it doesn't hold up too well, but that's not our topic for tonight. But we'll probably be able to get into more
3: of that as we get further into this letter. Mark, uh, just on that topic right there, is it true that only 10% of Israel now is the true judaic Hebrew followers?
2: You know, I have no idea. I mean, genetically, you have the 13th tribe by uh, Arnold Kessler, which gives some fascinating uh, background. And then... I don't believe there's any connection at all between the Bible and between modern-day Israelis, modern-day rabbinic Judaism. I don't believe there's any connection between those at all.
3: Okay, Uh, so there's no verifiable line that has survived and that we can say these are the true Jews here. no,
2: No, I believe they were intentionally wiped out in the first century that their uh, genealogies were intentionally destroyed by God and the priesthood was wiped out and all of these things.
3: They would be just followers by, by the scripture, but not by genealogy for certain.
2: Oh, right. As Kessler, who is Jewish points out, there's never been any prohibition against marrying an outsider as long as they proselytize to rabbinic Judaism. So genetically, within four or five generations, they're genetically indistinguishable from the people in which they live. Great. Thank Uh, you. Okay. So the point he's making here at the end of this is that it was Israel, God's chosen people, who rebelled against him, who vexed him for 40 years. Who was it that sinned and, and whose corpses fell in the desert? It was Israel. And to whom did he swear they wouldn't enter into his rest? It was the Israelites who did not obey him. And so he doesn't say it, but, you know, he's strongly implying that in the first exodus, the entire generation was wiped out by God. They did not enter into his rest. Only Caleb and Joshua of that generation survived to enter into God's rest, which was typified, of course, by the land of Canaan. And. He doesn't draw it all together, but it's obvious to see that that generation at that time when this letter was written is in the new Exodus and that most of them had that same evil heart of rebellion and unbelief as Chuck's already pointed out, you know, the woes against scribes and Pharisees. Christ spells all this out and he tells them that before this generation passes, you will see... (laughs) You'll see a God coming in judgment and you'll be utterly utterly destroyed. And verily, verily to use the King James this generation will not pass until all of these things have been fulfilled. So the the ramifications are very clear. All of the readers had a choice to cast their lot with Christ or to pull back during the persecution and just try to become just an average member of their synagogue community and remain part of traditional israel and our writer is saying no no if you do that you will be utterly destroyed from the presence of god forever so it's a very very sobering lesson here and and again we need, we need to go back and re-study the exodus and understand the lesson that applied there to that last generation of Israel in the first century as all of our new testament was delivered we can't understand any of the new testament writings unless we properly understand this context it was unbelief that kept that old generation out of the promised land and it was going to be unbelief which would would keep that final generation out of the third temple God's Mount Zion or New Jerusalem, however you want to call it, the family of God, the body of Christ. They were all going to be excluded from that because of unbelief. And again, I have a hypothesis here. We can test it out together. Unbelief or faith, if we substitute spiritually interpreting the promises for either faith or belief, then it, it just makes perfect sense. They read the prophecies and claim to believe them but they did not believe in a spiritual fulfillment of them and I believe that God condemns that as unbelief when you demand that they be fulfilled physically that's not what God had in mind you're not really believing it's not a saving belief it's actually a belief that leads to permanent eternal destruction so uh, we can kind of test that hypothesis as we proceed through the letter. All right, any last comments or questions here on Chapter 3? Excellent. All right, thanks. Well, we will hope to uh,
0: go into Chapter 4 then the next time we get together.